I'm glad to be with you this morning. I must admit that I forgot when I realized July 4th weekend that this would be communion weekend. But it did, um, it does seem interesting how things work out because this weekend we celebrate the birth of our country and we have ceremonies of remembrance. 239 years, if my math is correct. And then this morning we celebrate communion, the symbol of our relationship as the body of Christ, our family, a heritage almost 2,000 years old. And it's an interesting connection of events when this morning we talk about the world. I love my country very much. But if you are at all like me, you may have become more than a little disillusioned as of late in what we see happening in our country, what we see it becoming. It's frustrating and heartbreaking and maybe even more than a little bit disorienting. What do we do when the nation that we love comes into direct conflict with the love that we have for God? What do we do when the tension can no longer be ignored? And many American Christians today are rethinking their relationship with their country. And that may be a good thing because sometimes we sort of unthinkingly wrap the Bible with the flag, and we don't recognize the fact that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America, so to speak, are not necessarily the same thing. And today we hear all sorts of Christian voices. In the last two weeks, I have read Christians saying things like, See, we are becoming more like Jesus. We are loving better and more inclusively, and we are putting old traditions behind. And others seem to be saying fearfully, see what they've done, we have to recapture our country for God. And still others say, forget you all. We're going to go follow Christ in our own way and leave you to wallow in whatever it is that you're doing. And that first response is undeniably flawed from the point of view of Scripture. Arguments against it notwithstanding. And the second, recapture our country for God, seems noble to us. And the third, I have to admit, is very tempting to me. Let it go. There is a fairly well-known Christian who writes a a column for the New York Times, and he has uh, proposed that Christians follow what he calls the Benedict option, to follow St. Benedict and to form communities separate from the world. And he's very serious about it. But whatever our response is, I think it is clear that the United States is far less the Christian nation that maybe we thought it was, and far more like first century Rome. 
the Roman Empire that John is writing to. This is not, it would seem, the kingdom of God. And so we wrestle. What do we do as we finally start to see that the spiritual battle, the spiritual battlefield that we are on, is what it really is? And we are learning, I would say, like the title of the James Bond film, that the world is not enough. And so today we begin our third message on spiritual warfare. And our text today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And in them, John says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love for the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, lust of the flesh, in many translations, the lust of the eyes and their boasting about what they have and do, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us, for your instructions not just for the difficult decisions we have to make, but for who we are and who you are, more importantly. I pray that this morning you would speak through me, that we would see not only what the world is, but how we are to live in it and to interact with it. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I remember having a poster when I was in elementary school. It's late 70s, early 80s, I think. I know it's a lifetime ago for most people. But I seem to recall it being blue and fading to green and red. And it had a guy, cartoon guy, big guy, in the shape of a ball on there. And there was a caption on it. And it was Romans 12.2 in the Phillips translation. And it said this, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And today, we might be hard-pressed to know what we mean when we say the world. I heard Pastor Mark Dever tell attendees at a major conference that they should ask a recent convert to Christianity who did not grow up in a Christian environment what they thought of when the term the world or worldly was used. And he said, the reason why you should ask that question is because you might be surprised at how positive those understandings would be. So what do we mean, what does John mean when he says, do not love the world? Is it creation? Is it culture? Is it something else entirely? You see, the New Testament term most often used for world is a word that we all recognize. The word is cosmos. We've appropriated it into English, and generally speaking, it's used in three different ways. And the first way is the way that we use it in English. The created order, the earth, or as we might say, the universe. That's how we use it today. And that's clearly not what John's talking about here. He is not telling us that we should not love 
material, the material world, that we should not care about it. That was an early Christian heresy and Greek heresy. But the second way it's used is in reference to all of the people on the earth and related to that, the totality of human existence. We see this in Matthew 5.14 when Jesus says, You are the light of the world in the Sermon on the Mount. Or in John 3.16, For God so loved the world. We'll come back to that verse later. In Matthew 16.26, Jesus asks the question, What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world but lose their soul? And in 1 Corinthians 7, Perhaps one of the clearest pictures in some ways of this. Verses 32 to 35, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers. In this case, it's about marriage. And he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord and both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul is talking in this case about the legitimate concerns that married people have for one another. The concerns of the world, in this case, are not bad things. And so we might call this second use of culture, or of of the word world, as the culture. Culture is not, in and of itself, evil. God loves the world, we saw. And Christians are to be a light in it. And the Sermon on the Mount shows us what that looks like. When Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world? He is not saying that that gaining the world in and of itself, having things is evil. What he is saying is when you have to give up your soul, who you are in order to get those things, that is a problem. That is evil. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is simply recognizing the reality of the world. He is, in effect, saying, look, if you're single and you don't have the obligations of family, of spouses, of children, of whomever, you can be more focused on work for the kingdom. He's not saying so much, don't get married, as, look, this is what happens. After all, Proverbs 18.22 tells us, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. And I can attest that that is very true. There is no question. But Paul is being practical. When we're married, it's our responsibility to take care of one another. Things like houses and clothes and making each other happy matter. They should matter. And if we look at the Old Testament... When we think about culture, think about this. Throughout this story of the Old Testament, people built houses and tabernacles and temples. They built vineyards and grew crops and created works of art and poetry and music. Think about the book of Psalms. It is a hymn book. 
In fact, one of the most amazing places where we see culture as not simply a bad thing, but something to be embraced, is in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. This is very interesting to me. Because the Jewish people have been carted off to Babylon. Okay? This is as pagan a place as you can find. And in Scripture, Babylon is always understood to be evil. It is the symbolic kind of embodiment of evil. And this is what God says through Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Verse 7. This is the amazing one. Also. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Even in a place like Babylon, as pagan as it is possible for it to be, God says to his people, Do not shun culture. Do not shun the city. Work for its prosperity. Yes, Jeremiah and other prophets call for Babylon to repent. And if it doesn't repent, it will face the wrath of God. And at the same time, God's people are to work for the prosperity of that city. It's an amazing thing to look at. And if we look into the New Testament, we think about how... Many early Christians were business people. Paul made tents. He engaged in commerce. Barnabas seems to have come from a well-to-do family. And Lydia in Acts 16 was a seller of purple. This was a very serious luxury item. You see, culture is the air that we breathe. Everyone has a culture. Everyone. Language and customs and art and architecture, a common narrative that we live by, say, the story of the U.S. War for Independence that we celebrate this weekend. Culture in and of itself is not the problem. It's what we do with it that's the problem. And this is the third way that the world is used here. Theologian Millard Erickson puts it this way, There are other references where cosmos designates a virtual spiritual force. The antithesis of, as it were, of the kingdom of God. It appears to denote the very embodiment of evil. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary puts it this way. The the world order is as alienated from God in rebellion against him and condemned for its godlessness. You see, so there's a connection between this second idea idea or way that the world is used and the third. In 1 John 2, 5, or 15, the world is what happens when culture turns from God. It is, as Mark Dever has said, 
taking an inferior good and treating it as your final, ultimate end. And so good becomes evil, and sometimes in very surprising ways. I love J.I. Packer, and he says this about what worldliness is. Enslavement to activities is worldliness in its purest form. Compulsive workaholism is as worldly as any form of laziness. Whether persons are worldly or not depends not on how much pleasure they take from life, but on the spirit in which they take it. If we let pleasant things engross us so that we forget God, we are worldly. If we receive them gratefully with the purpose of pleasing God by our appreciation and use of His gifts, we are not worldly, but godly. Worldliness is the spirit that substitutes earthly goals, pleasure, profit, popularity, privilege, power, definitely a preacher, for life's true goal, which is the praise of God. Worldliness is not pleasure, but the confusion of values, is what Packer says. So how do we get there? How do our values get so confused? Let's connect the dots. I think there is a straight line that can be drawn from the sermons for the past three weeks. Two weeks ago when I was here, we talked about the devil. What does he do? He twists and tempts. He deceives and flatters. Has God said he lies? He can't create. He can only corrupt. And what better way to get us off track than to offer us something good? If you remember, we talked about how he offers us what seems to be a better way. Something that seems not bad at all, but good. In our present day, how can anyone be against love? Isn't love a good thing? Of course it is. But the love that we are peddling, the love that is peddled to us, is a twisted thing. And I'm not simply talking about the recent Supreme Court decision. I'm talking about what the world in general calls love. But it doesn't stop with what the devil does and how he twists. As Pastor Steve talked about, I think, last week, we have a problem. The flesh. The devil doesn't simply strike randomly at us. He pushes our buttons. He finds our weakness. The sin inside of us all. We all sin. It's what we do. John tells us very clearly that we all sin. And so... We need to remember, as I believe Pastor Steve quoted last week, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the... discipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation, we slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. It's D.A. Carson. Another uh, pastor said that all we have to do to indulge the flesh is put ourselves into neutral, and we'll go there. It's important for us to recognize that the flesh 
continues to work, that the devil takes our natural desires, our flesh, and uses the human culture around us against us. The world is the shadow of the good that God created, what he created us to be. You see, this is Satan's mockery of life. It is, if you will, the corrupted air that we breathe. And so conflict is inevitable. It shouldn't surprise us when John tells us that if we love the world, we can't love the Father. Why? Because it is the corruption of his good creation. It is our human arrogance and pride writ large. We seem to have taken the words of our father, the devil, and said, I will be like the most high. And we have been corrupted thoroughly. He is the ruler of this world, and he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world in Matthew 4 because he could. And he does the same to us. In John 15, verses 18 to 21, Jesus reminds us, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know who sent me. As Christians, it is clear we will be in conflict with the world. If we are following Christ, if we truly love the Father, we can't be in love with the world as well. We will be in conflict with it. But the reality is, for most of us, we stumble. We fall into temptation. We do love the world. Why? Why do we go here? Because... There is an appeal to the world. There is a lure. Lake Shabanaugh is famous for muskies. What do they do? They hit a lure that's plastic and metal. And we are just like it. We see the shiny things and we want it. And we are dragged to places we don't want to go. You see, the world promises a lot. John tells us that the world offers three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things that we crave. The world offers us, very simply, what the flesh wants. And that is the devil's plan and snare. The world offers us what we want most. self satisfaction, our own kingdom. It offers to set us up in the place of God in our own lives. Many circles today, we talk about authenticity. In a lot of Christian circles, we talk about authenticity. And the irony is the world takes what is a good thing. The desire for honesty, of being real, and twists it and turns it into something else. An indulgement of the flesh. Because we say, this is just who I am. 
Yeah, that's exactly who you are. But God doesn't want us to be there. We are that way because we are fallen. The lust of the flesh tells us that physical satisfaction will complete us. Food, sex, whatever. The lust of the eyes tells us if we just get that thing, we will be happy. And the pride of life tells us if we gain status, if people see what we have done and what we have accomplished, they will envy us and we will be in a better place. Everything will be good. In our contemporary Western culture, we have gotten this amazing talent. We are the world, if ever there was one. We have this amazing talent for combining all three. We use the lust of the flesh to sell the lust of the eyes, and we throw in the pride of life for free. There's a commercial for a Hardee's hamburger right now with hot dog with a hot dog and chips on it that I'm thinking about. It combines all three into that one commercial, and you know which one I'm talking about. Our specific temptations in regard to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are all going to be slightly different. And they're going to change within us over time. And often we're tempted to think, I am tempted to think, that the lust of the flesh is the particular temptation of the young. And the lust of the eyes of the middle age. And the pride of life, maybe as we get onward in years. And to a degree, and maybe as a general rule of thumb, that's true. But only in a general manner. Because we all suffer from all. And as Christians, we are just as capable of falling to this kind of trap as the world, meaning non-believers, around us. All of 1 John is a testament to this dual nature, this fighting back and forth between the love of God and the love of the world, between indulging our sin and loving God and His people. In Romans 7, verses 15 to 20, Paul makes it explicit. He says this, I, don't, I do not understand what I do. For what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have d- the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, listen, I am as capable of sinning as anyone. And J.I. Packer, in another book called Hot Tub Religion, Christian Living in a Materialistic World, said this about the church And temptation. Now we can see hot tub religion for what it is Christianity corrupted by the passion for pleasure. Hot tub religion is Christianity trying to beat materialism, Freudianism, humanism, and Hollywood at their own game rather than challenge the errors that the rules of the game reflect. Christianity, in short, has fallen victim yet again, for this has happened many times before in different ways, to the allure of the fallen world. 
worldliness, that is embracing the world's values, in this case pleasure, is the source of hot tub religion's distinctive outlook. Symptoms of hot tub religion today include a skyrocketing divorce and remarriage rate among Christians, widespread indulgence of sexual aberrations, and overheated supernaturalism that seeks signs, wonders, visions, prophecies, and miracles, constant soothing syrup from electronic preachers in the liberal pulpit, anti-intellectual sentimentalism, and emotional highs deliberately cultivated, the Christian equivalent of cannabis and coca, and an easy, thoughtless acceptance of luxury in everyday living. These are not healthy trends. They make the church look like the world, driven by the same unreasoning desire for pleasure seasoned with magic. Thus, they undermine the credibility of the gospel of new life. If these trends are to be reversed, a new frame of reference will have to be established. And then he immediately follows up with our passage today. This is what we need to recognize. That book was written in 1987. You see, the world promises us peace. It promises us satisfaction. And it cannot deliver. And I think we can see this in at least two ways. First, practically, empirically speaking, the things that we have seen and know to be true, we know that the world can't deliver on what it promises. The words that John uses here, the cravings or lust and pride, are very telling. You see, craving knows no limits. It does not reason. It does not know moderation. It simply wants. When my wife was pregnant with our children, she would occasionally crave very strange things. And I learned you do not argue with the cravings. You just deal with it. You get whatever it is that's needed. Because cravings are not reasonable. They just are what they are. Pride is thirsty. It always wants more. And it drives us to greater or perhaps better lower depths. In both cases, lust and pride, we are talking about here an addiction. Talk to somebody who works with people who are facing addictions. It doesn't matter what the addiction is. Alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling or food or whatever. Addiction always requires more. It has to have more. And maybe one of the ways that I've seen it most clearly articulated without a hint of irony, which is amazing, is when John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much is enough? This is one of the richest men who has ever lived, who could never have possibly spent all of his money And he said, just a little more. That's addiction. And that is the offering of the world. The world can't deliver peace, only hunger. It turns us into vampires. The undead seeking another fix. You know, many of those things that we want aren't bad. They're not evils in and of themselves. Remember what Devers said that taking an inferior good and treating it as your final and ultimate end. The problem is, often, we're taking a material or cultural good and putting it in a place that it doesn't belong. It is, in a world, word idolatry. 
This is the point of the beginning of Romans. If you read Romans chapter 1, Paul shows us what our flesh, what our natural desires are. We push God to the side and we push ourselves forward. We indulge ourselves and God lets us. Paul tells us that God gave them, us, over us before we were in Christ to their, the sinful desires of their hearts, in verse 24, to shameful lusts, in verse 26, to a depraved mind, in verse 28. If you read the whole chapter, what you see is a list of payments for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This is what love of the world delivers. But the second way that we see in this passage that love of the world can't deliver, is what John says in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. So even if the world could deliver on peace, on self-satisfaction, let's say it could. It can't, but let's say it could. It's only temporary. It's only a moment. We'll come to the end, and what will we have? The remnants of our lives... Are they worth it? We don't know how long we have. What if our lives are required today? Will all that striving have been worth it? But the reality is, we still have to live here in this world. Point three. It's the here and now. Come on, you say. It's not really that bad. I can dabble here and there. I am, after all, forgiven have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Jesus and we treat this life as a spiritual smorgasbord instead of a spiritual battle and this is what John tells us we can't do how do we live in this world how do we get along without loving the world I think first we need to remember what God offers and this is the crucial thing that I think we forget. This is where we get tripped up and somehow we buy into the lie that the world is better. That its offer, even if we know it can't last, even if we know that it really can't truly satisfy, we somehow fall into this trap that it does. That it's better than what God offers us. This is the lie that we've been sold. This is the subtle twisting of the devil in the garden. Has God said? Well, no, that's not really what he said at all. He twists what God says and then tells us, you won't die. God knows what, it, what is going to happen. If you eat that, if you indulge yourself, you're going to be like him. And that's the lie we're sold. The devil, the flesh, and the world offer a twisted version of life. And God offers the real thing. We tend, even as Christians, to think that God offers rules. Follow the rules and you get to go to heaven. Which is fine, but it's not very appealing in the here and now. We seem to believe that even when we know better. But God doesn't offer rules. God offers life. Yes, there are rules. There are things we ought to do and ought not to do. Why? Because he's the creator of the universe, the one who loves us and died in our place, and he knows what's best for us. He wants it for us. Because in him is life, John 1.4. It's the light of the world. What God offers is the opposite of the world. It is the world put to rights. 
Why does God love the world in John 3, 16? Because it's His. Because He is its author and He does not want the twister to have it. Remember when we spoke of the devil a couple weeks ago, and N.T. Wright said that the height of Satan's aim, in other words, is death. The death of humans and the death of creation itself. Because it is the opposite of what God offers. God offers life, the world put to rights, human flourishing, culture set free from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In Colossians 1, 15-20, we read that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the world, the image of the invisible God. And in verse 19 and 20, we remember these things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What Paul is saying is in Christ the cosmos is redeemed, the entire thing. God's plan is the redemption of everything. And life is being with God and living as he intended. John 10, 10, he has come to offer us an abundant life. And this is what God offers that the world cannot. This is our hope. So what do we do? We're living in the in-between time. As theologians say, the already but not yet. We are His, but we still live in a fallen world. And this is where things get tough. As the saying goes, it's about to get real. Because we have to live in, but not of the world. The subtle and scary reality is that many of us, and dare I say all of us, have played with fire. We have attempted to live in, to love those two worlds at once. And we've become friends with the world. We're no different than the world around us, and it scares me in my own life. Because this is what James chapter 4 verses 1 to 10 says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, hatred against God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. We have to repent of our love for the world. You know, sometimes we are tempted to run away from the world. This is the option that many good Christians tend toward disengage stop fighting and let it rot but it's not an option for the Christian 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. If Christ is in us, we can't retreat. That's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. Work for the prosperity of your city, of Babylon. Because we are not to love the world in the sense of definition three. We are to love the world in the sense of definition two. The people in it. Jesus' prayer in John 17, known as the high priestly prayer, says this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We can neither leave nor love the world in the sense of John, 1 John 2. So what do we do? Simply, we follow Jesus. What did he do? What was he about? Jesus loved the world, we're told in John 3.16. Not the world as it is opposed to God and his works, but the people, the creation that is his who as a parent of a wayward child longs for them to be back. And he has chosen us to be the means of bringing the good news of his grace to the world. That means we have to engage as he engaged. Firm? Yes. Truth-telling? Of course. But loving, gentle, grace-filled. We are to be like him. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are to love those who need love. Jesus said that he came to heal the sick. He spent time with sinners because they needed him. As Dave said, we all have a hunger. We know it. The world can't deliver on that hunger. Only Christ can. And we are to love others, to love people, the people we need to love. And John 3, 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we love people in the world the way that God loves them, but not love the world, not fall prey to it? How do we resist treating people as projects and really love them the way Christ loved them. Jesus ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. He loved the woman caught in adultery, and he loved Zacchaeus. He loved children and the foreigners, and he loved the unlovable. How do we do this and not love the world? I could give you a list of things to do. Pray, for real. Stop doing the things that you're not supposed to do, and you know it. Develop a real Christian character. Practice it so that when you are faced with difficulty, you can actually resist. Read your Bible. These are all very important, but on their own, they're just things to do. And they will fail apart from one thing. The key is knowing Jesus. Really knowing Him. When we know Jesus, we want to be like Him. We learn who he is and what he does. This is what disciples do. In the first century, the disciples 
were following a rabbi. And students of a rabbi followed him everywhere and did what he did, copying him in every way. In fact, Orthodox Jewish followers of rabbis do the same today. We need to stop being so concerned about somehow falling in the trap of a works-based salvation that we forget that belief is more than agreeing to something in our mind. You see, belief in Jesus is repentance. It is turning from putting ourselves first or the world first and instead conforming our lives to His way of thinking. Belief in Jesus means our life changes. You want to be in the world but not of it? Saturate yourself in Him. Live your life for Him because He is life. And I'll leave us with 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And the reminder is that the world is not enough, but Jesus is. And this is what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his, children as well, his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen.